0: and welcome to Love, Hate, Relationship, an
1: opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel. And I'm Alex Ruiz. And as ever, we are here to brighten your day, anger your souls, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, you had something? I do. I do. I have something to talk about for our our buffer
0: here. Alex, do you know how many episodes it was ago we talked about one L. Ron
1: Hubbard uh it was like episode 15 or something it was one of our triples but yeah I, i mean it's easily more than a year maybe almost two years ago
0: yeah absolutely it is it is one of the first triple uh hate specials the first triple hate special we ever did we recorded that episode some point in 2019 early 2020 at the most
1: where are you going with this
0: So, it was when we recorded this episode that I was introduced by you to Behind the Bastards. Yes. A podcast we've talked about ad nauseum since then. On time of recording on April the 22nd, 2022, easily at most like two and a quarter years later, I have finally caught up on the Behind the Bastards catalog. I am up to date with their most recent episode.
1: Holy shit, Andy. (laughs) Like, for those of you... Okay, if we're going to talk about this, we should mention. All right. The purpose behind Behind the Bastards... Is, it is a is it a weekly
0: podcast? It is a it is a uh, twice a week podcast. Twice
1: a week podcast where they do episodes. Sometimes it's like one part episode. Sometimes they're two, three or in the case of I know Alex Jones, four part episodes where they talk about a terrible person
0: a bastard of human history
1: and they will talk they did a i think three or four part episode on l ron hubbard yep they did a four-parter on alex jones they did a six-parter on
0: henry kissinger Oh, Oh, which proves definitively he is humanity's greatest war criminal that is
1: you know yeah Um, but then, and then they'll also do these, like, shorter ones, like, just a one-episode, one-shot kind of deal on, like, the woman, I don't remember her name, but she... Uh, basically ran an adoption agency in the 1800s and, you know, or early 1900s, and then they found out that she molested, like, every single child that stepped through the orphanage's doors.
0: Georgia Tam.
1: There, there you go. <laughs> I
0: know this now because of this podcast. This is... This is all presented fairly um humorously but it is it is more often than not some soul destroying content. I've I have learned about so many great atrocities of human history. I've I've learned the ins and outs of how the religious right like came to be and just truly how insidious it is like
1: they have a great um I think two-parter episode on King Leopold of Belgium yep. like And this has been, like, my
0: premier podcast. Like, I have listened to this more than I have listened
1: to any other show. Admittedly, I dropped this podcast. (laughs) Like, not because I couldn't handle it, but because as I was just, you know, culling some of my podcast listening, because it was a little too much for me to keep up with, it was one that just didn't survive. I listened to the It Can Happen Here podcast, which is a a five-day-a-week that's written and done by all the same team right but and, and they will regularly reference like oh yeah we did a whole bastards on this one or what have you but you are caught up on behind the bastards
0: and this is maybe the first podcast that i wasn't around on episode one four that i have caught up all the way through
1: you gonna do Jane miles next
0: That's probably, yeah, Jane Miles Explained the X-Men is going to be, like, the next one I truly just go into the back catalog of while I keep up to speed with my hockey podcast, Puck Soup, and Behind the Bastards as it drops in real time now. And that's just going to be my auditory listening experience.
1: Okay, so you have listened to several years of Bastards at this point. Hundreds of hours. What? What? Can you, what have you taken? I, I'm still reeling from the fact that there are six episodes on Henry Kissinger. What have you taken from this experience?
0: Well, I know at the drop of a hat, names of like Georgia Tam, just horrible monsters. I I learned about the second greatest chemical waste disaster in human history, which is the um, the Indian power plant Bopap. <laughs> or BoTap. Um, which is just a nightmare Chernobyl-esque story that no one talks about because it was India. Mm. I've learned about, like english lords who fucked off to indonesia and declared themselves pirate kings and like called the populace and i've learned about just what a evil little bastard ben shapiro is and how he is functionally illiterate based off of readings from his many books that are just (laughs) hilarious exercises in oh that's not how you write a book
1: it's so I, I will say, um, and I think I've referenced this on the pod, uh, one of the other podcasts I do listen to, again, with a similar team, um, which is Worst Year Ever. For the holidays, they decided to read Ben Shapiro's fiction books. Um, and the thing is, it's not that they come off as functionally illiterate. It's that they come off like he just wrote them, never reread them, never edited them, and yeah. then just self published them. Yep. Because there's weird format shit. The stories, that, there's one story that is a like dumb ripoff of, um, oh God, what's it called? Journey into the, or, or Fantastic Voyage. Mm, There's mm-hmm. one that is a ripoff of 1984, yeah. and all of them are just really poorly done, just doesn't at all show that he has any real idea how to handle writing fiction. Yeah. And in fairness, he wrote them when he was in his like early twenties and self-published them. I don't want anyone to read the shit I was writing in my early 20s either, But and he's apparently tried to bury them. But.
0: Oh, well, sure. Of course he has. But, you know, you're not uh, Ben Shapiro, hateful little right-wing monster. Indeed. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could probably give a half-accurate, off-the-top-of-my-head, recounting of the evolution of American fascism. Like, there is just shit that i'm proud of you (laughs) on the one hand i'm glad it's in here it helps me feel unjaded to society and on the other hand listen to a two-parter about the boy scouts and how robert baden powell basically designed that to be a molestation factory from the start and had to feel sad about it for a few days so that's what i've been doing with my time
1: So I recently started listening to a podcast called the Scott's Bass Lessons Podcast, (laughs) where a YouTuber I follow who does these really cool, like, bass videos and does, like, bass instructional content does a podcast where he interviews various bassists, most of whom are, like, studio bassists. Although I just got done listening to one with Doug Wimbush, who's the bassist for Living Color. And I'm like, that's super cool. Hell and like, yeah. most of the other people are like, awesome studio bassists who've played on just like really interesting studio songs. And you finished Bastards.
0: <laughs> I finished Bastards. I asked you at one point, like, if I wanted to start, it could happen here. Where where would I do that? And
1: Well, no, and I flat out told you, like, Listen to the first season in its entirety. It's like, I think, 10 episodes. Listen to the five episodes that started The Daily Show, which is another scripted segment. And then after that, you don't have to necessarily listen to it like from the beginning because it is a daily podcast. Right. I would say scroll through, look for cool topics that might interest you, like because it's not a daily news show, but it is a daily show. Right. So, like, they just got done doing a two-parter uh, that's just education on how hormone replacement therapy works, which is super cool. They had a – I don't remember if it was a one- or a two-parter, but they had a whole episode on DIY abortion. They had an episode all about um, the ethics of media piracy and what and what is involved with that. And, like, if these are topics that interest you, fucking go for them. And then occasionally, if there is a story that is worthwhile, that is timely, like, I think they did an episode on the Ukraine conflict at one point. I know they've
0: done a couple on the Myanmar genocide, which I know I want to listen to.
1: Yeah, so I Which is a thing I'll
0: say now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're so, see, this is, here's the thing. This is the shit that I just like read about. Like, I like I got I got a bunch of Howard Zinn books over uh, there on the uh, shelf, uh. and I'm like, "Oh, Andy, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> this has been this has been my life,
0: indeed." And I I like the dichotomy of. I'm the one who finished Bastards. You're listening to a bass guitar podcast. This feels like how this should be for anyone who knows us or our general dynamic on the show.
1: You just, you're so sweet.
0: Oh, thank you. You're
1: so, like, I don't know. You're such a golden retriever of a human. And there's a part of me that kind of wants to be like, no, Andy, protect yourself. It's okay. Okay. But then there's the part of me that checks your voter registration because we're coming up on our fucking primaries and you've registered to vote in North Carolina. And I know for a fact they do voter purges here on the regular, Mm. which is why I check your registration and Mariah's registration and mine and Stephanie's registration. Because I'm like, these motherfuckers are not going to stop us from fucking voting.
0: Absolutely. So... So we don't just record podcasts, we also listen to them voraciously, and we also record podcasts, which is what we're doing right now. Welcome to Love Hate Relationship.
1: (laughs) Uh, That's right. Uh, After a, you know, usual kind of douchebag buffery thing where we just riff on some shit to get people to stop listening who don't want to listen, you have stayed, and we do want you to listen Uh, after that. We go and do one topic that one of us loves, another topic that one of us hates, and then we take a relationship question from either you, our lovely listeners, or the internet. And uh, this time, Andy, I believe you have the love.
0: That's right. I do have the love. And so, uh, for anyone who's wondering about the name of the person, we're talking about Kieran Gillen, um, and he is a comics writer, but... Every time we've done this in the past, I know I especially have associated like, oh, I love this writer's run on this. I love Mark Waid's Daredevil. I love Jason Aaron's Thor. I just love Karen Gillan. But before then, I want to ask, because I don't think we've talked about this. Alex, dear boy, are you at all familiar with the works of British comic writer Kieran
1: Gillen? I am somewhat familiar with Kieran Gillen. Kieran Gillen is not a writer. I've talked about this on the podcast before. When it comes to comic books, I don't really follow characters super closely, um, but I do follow writers I like. Uh, Kieran Gillen is not a writer that I follow religiously. Uh, not because he's bad. Uh, what I have read of him, I have enjoyed. Mm. Um, by and large, what I mostly associate Kieran Gillen with is, uh, his creator-owned book, The Wicked and the Divine. Sure. Which I have not read, but it has been on my list for a number of years because I understand it to be a fantastic book.
0: We are going to talk about *Wicked*.
1: So uh we did a previous episode i think it was actually like i still love thinking about this i think it was our longest episode we ever did it was like an hour and 45 minutes we did an episode where my love was the comic book podcast house to astonish which is my favorite podcast um they are huge kieran gillen fans talk about kieran gillen regularly i think they have done live show segments where Kieran Gillen has been a guest Ooh,
0: on them cuz they do
1: like these annual things at the um gla- um gla- what what's the comic book uh convention that's in Scotland not Edinburgh Glasgow
0: Comic Con I
1: think so something okay. like that um but they but they will um do these live shows in partnership with the um, something Silence podcast um, and, and and they've had Al Ewing on there. They've had they've had a bunch of creators on there. But I know I'm pretty sure they have had Kieran Gillen on there. And you will see the House of okay. Astonish guys interacting with Kieran Gillen on Twitter constantly. They're friends. Sure, sure. So I think a lot about that. I know Kieran Gillen was huge on X Men. Yep. Um I know he did Manifest Destiny. Um, and I know I was associated with that. Um, it, he did shit with Avengers versus X Men, didn't he? Um, so that was
0: all Bendis. I think Gielan might have been the writer of Uncanny X Men in like the immediate run before okay. Avengers versus X Men. I mean, this isn't in, in my notes, so I'm fine just throwing it out. Um, Marvel ended the. Uncanny X-Men run, like the started in 1965 run with Gillen as the final writer, and they like trusted him to like close close the book before we reboot Uncanny X-Men next month with a new writer.
1: The other thing that I I I know I have read of him is the Star Wars Darth Vader books. I read the first volume of that and it was fucking impeccable yep and i say this as an enormous star wars nerd like i i had my doubts about i i I was happy when disney bought star wars because i was very excited for them to do with star wars what they had done with marvel but when they started adjusting things in the comics i was like i didn't know how to feel about it but when kieran gillen was writing darth vader i was like that is a move that i respect that is a move that i appreciate because i think gillen is a writer who can handle star wars lore and do a good job with it and his darth vader i haven't read the whole run but i read the first volume and i really enjoyed it
0: absolutely and we'll so i'll touch on all of this and a whole bunch of other stuff but thank you for that answer for for listeners who are looking for a little bit more detail which i'm happy to provide Uh, Kieran Gillen was born in Britain in 1975, and weirdly, this is probably the first person I've ever looked up where I can't find more detail than that. I don't know if he was born in Gloucester on the beach or what, it just says Britain 1975, so, um, and he is maybe the first comic writer that I've talked about that wasn't attached to a specific run, because... I love everything this man has done. I don't think I could attach a specific run as his magnum opus. Uh, Kieran Gillen is easily one of my top three favorite writers working today. All right. I love this man and his work. He is most well-known for creating The Wicked and the Divine, as well as Star Wars Darth Vader and Star Wars Dr. Aphra, and has worked on several different Marvel titles, including numerous runs on X-Men, like we've been saying. Sweet. Before breaking into comics, Gillen also worked as a video game and music journalist. And this is hugely important to understanding his his total style and oeuvre and we've talked about how like comics writing is not a job that you can sustain on anymore unless you are one of the brian michael bendis's or jeff johns's of the world yeah um
1: and even jeff johns like jeff johns does not make his bones on the books he writes he makes his bones being a full-time editor at sure. DC.
0: Absolutely. And so, like, everybody has a gig, Every, everybody comes into it doing something else. Um, and I, I think that Gillen's journalism and his interests, video games and music, have, have really affected his work. Um, I'm going to link it in the show notes. We're going to attach it. There's a really wonderful interview with Three Crows Magazine in which he goes into detail about music influencing his writing life.
1: I am re- I'm mad that you didn't send me this interview before. <laughs> I'm just opening it now. I, the, okay, so something I always knew about Gillen, and I know this is in your notes, but I know that he comes up with playlists yes. for his books.
0: Yes, and, and so he talks about that process and that style. Um, I want to just make one quote from the article. I think it's great, and absolutely you should read it if you're interested. But to give a sense of color, this is a quote from Gillen. When I was younger and more self-destructive, I would write my work for higher stuff sober and my creative stuff drunk. Which is <laughs> perfect. And he goes, yeah, it was an excuse for me to get hammered and then work on something fun. Yeah. Since he's gotten older... The process has shifted to creating Spotify playlists for each of his books, which he then posts, and you can look up... If you look up Kieran Gillen on Spotify, it's just a shit ton of playlists, which is a brilliant atmospheric tactic that I have never heard of another writer doing. Mm. Not to say that they all are, and maybe they are, but, like, I have never experienced a writer being like, yeah, this is the playlist I listened to when I wrote Wicked Into the Vine.
1: And that's interesting because... So, there is an exercise that I heard about when I was in graduate school for writing, um, which was making social media profiles for Mm -hmm. your characters. Sure. So, you're writing a novel and it's got this character who's this age and this stuff, and it's just making a social media profile for them. Yeah. So that you can kind of figure, get into their head. And I have heard people talk about making Spotify playlists of the shit that your character would listen to. Right. Which is not the same thing as making playlists for your books, for the story as a whole to go alongside it. I feel like it's a thing that I've heard of, like, indie movie makers doing. Like, this is a playlist to go with with my movie, but, like... This is unique in the realm of comics writers. Oh, well,
0: and the other thing is, like, I, I feel like there is a dime in a dozen. There's a dime a dozen thing where, like, fans will do this. Fans will make a Batman playlist, will make a Sandman playlist. I've never heard of a creator being like, here is my intended emotional context for the story you are enjoying. Mm. And I just think that's brilliant, amazing, well done. Like, I don't, I don't know if he invented this or if he just kind of coincidentally started doing it. But having nothing else to go on, I, I assume that he was the first person of this profile to do such a thing. And I think it's amazing. Before breaking into comics, Gillen... Uh, no, 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 I just said that. Um, By his own admission, Gillen got into comic books as an interest relatively late in life. You know, he he says, I think in the same interview, he picked up Alan Moore's Watchmen at the age of 21 as it was coming out in real time Mm -hmm. and was blown away by Alan Moore's prose.
1: Which is fair. Fair. Alan Moore, like I have maintained, Alan Moore is one of the great just... If you want good narration, good prose, people don't point to Alan Moore because he writes comics, but listen to some of the Rorschach monologues that are opening some of the chapters of Watchmen. That is amazing prose. Yeah.
0: And I mean, I've heard for as long as I've been paying attention to such a thing, academics say, no, here is the argument as to why comics are art. Please read Watchmen now.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I made that same argument. Yeah, exactly. The only, is... the only graphic novel on the Time Magazine's 500 Greatest Novels list. Mm-hmm.
0: So it's very understandable that this would, like, Somebody who had never been interested, never cared, is handed this work and is like, oh, holy shit, this is life-changing. Okay. Which is apparently what happened with Gillen. Um, and it's funny because, like, I would sit and listen to an argument of someone comparing Gillen to more. There's actually a different um, iconic author that I will compare Killen, Kieran Gillen to later in the episode. Yeah. Um, So his first actual writing gig, Kieran Gillen's actual writing gig, was writing short story comics in the pages of Warhammer Monthly Magazine. That's... Which anyone who's been listening to, like, the last ten or so episodes will remember.
1: Oh, Jesus, Andy.
0: This is one of my favorite things, like... It is so coincidentally funny to me that this guy got his start writing Warhammer. He also wrote for PlayStation 2 magazine as, like, doing just, like, little three-page comics of just, like, whatever the hell. This guy's interests, like, totally overlap with my own. (laughs) Part of why I love him, I think more than any other of the, like, great writers I know and adore... I think I could get a pint with Kieran Gillen and have something to talk about that we would both like be excited about. And that I, makes me very happy.
1: I could see that. I could definitely see that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs> um, so, Kieran Gillen's career rose meteorically, leading him, to, leading him to creating the urban fantasy series Phonogram, which I have not read.
1: I have not um, either.
0: But it's like a, a twelve issue mini-series, which the the whole conceit of phonogram is what if in order to do magic you had to be listening to music? And that colored what your magic was. If you're listening to death metal, it's gonna be more destructive. If you're listening to jazz, it's gonna unlock a different spell. This brilliant concept this like oh holy shit how has no one thought to do that concept
1: it's a nerdy-ass con like as a music nerd (laughs) like andy okay i'm a writer and a musician and a music nerd and i will tell you up front if i had thought of that exact same idea i would have rejected it (laughs) because i would be like no that's too on the nose
0: Oh, see, if I had come up with that idea, I would have furiously typed out, like, a whole fucking thing and been like, this is like, this is what you do. This is groundbreaking. This is brilliant. I don't think anybody's ever done that before. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, He also then went on to write, immediately after Phonogram, The Wicked and the Divine, which... We can talk about here now um, and is probably the one work that people would point to and be like, no, this is Kieran Gillen's masterpiece.
1: That's that's what I would always understand it
0: as. The Conceit of the Wicked and the Divine, which is an incredibly beloved series, it ran for five years, um, is what if ancient mythical gods returned to Earth as Pop stars. <laughs> that is like the core conceit of the book. It, it immediately goes a million different places and is bloody and grotesque and epic in the way that a story about gods should be and is truly wonderful. I, mean, I think it's the thing that, that I personally like. Somebody whose opinion I trusted was like, oh, you need to read this. And I was hooked from the start. And that momentum eventually led to him taking a position in the Marvel bullpen. Okay. So to go off notes here, this is the part where you and I should talk about the comics Gillen has written.
1: All right. I'm here for it.
0: So you mentioned being a fan of his Star Wars work, and I will say absolutely that deserves praise and attention. His Darth Vader is amazing. I would say he is a big part of the reason as to why the Marvel Star Wars comics, which like you mentioned, Disney bought the rights to Star Wars. So this is like a seven year old idea. Dylan has a lot of uh, credit for that. And one of the other things is a character he created, Dr. Afra. Dr. Afra is this like Harley Quinn character. And I don't say that to say the character is anything like Harley Quinn, but Dr. Aphra is a creation of Gillens for the comic book universe that instantly became the most popular point of the comic book universe, the point where they're throwing Dr. Aphra... Either in one of the shows that just came out or an upcoming movie project, something. This is the breakout character who is doing that thing that Harley Quinn did of being introduced in one format and is so popular that it's like, oh, we need to put this character in all of the formats. X23. X23. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's that, that, that. Both of these are limited in that it was cartoons going into comics. This is comics going into cartoons. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, For Star Wars, which was a property that existed first as movies, then as everything else that ever was. Right,
0: absolutely. Um, I'm trying to pull up and see if I can find the 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 back-of-the-page blurb for Wicked and the Divine, because it really kind of like sells the oeuvre of the thing you said you have not mentioned it you have not you, you said I have not you have read not it. read it i have not
1: read it i have heard about wicked and the divine like again the house of astonished guys have talked about it a bunch they've reviewed i think the end of it okay which you know goes into another thing i know you've talked about on the podcast which is a desire to see stories end Yes. When you've talked about Transmet, you talked about how it ends. Yeah. Wicked and the Divine um, concluded in 2019, I think. Yep. Um, you know, and it's only it's only 51, 51 issues. I, I've got the Wikipedia for it open right now. Uh, it's only 51 issues. I think Jamie McKelvey drew all of them. Which is another thing I've always harped on. Like, if you can get an entire
0: run... With mostly this the same artist doing every issue, that is just outstanding. Yeah,
1: and Jamie McKelvey is a great artist, Uh, and absolutely he. uh, The thing I know him best for is the redesigns on um, Carol Danvers' uh, outfit when she became Captain Marvel, as well as didn't he create like co-create Kamala Khan or like do the character designs on her for Ms. Marvel?
0: I don't think so if that's true I'm I, I am unaware of it.
1: I yeah, agree. he did the redesign. yeah All right. yeah he, so he did the design of Kamala Khan's costume for Ms. Marvel. Well, there you go. Like he did not create the character quote unquote um, in the you, you, you know because he did not initially write that book that was that was G. Willow Wilson. But he did the visual designs for her costume.
0: Okay, sure. Um, and and Jamie McKelvey himself is brilliant, one of my favorite artists working today. Yeah. I, I want to read real quick the this is the back of page for Wicked of the Vine. This is like the, the teaser. Every ninety years twelve gods incarnate as humans. They are loved, they are hated, in two years they are dead. That is what's on the back. And it is it is such an amazing book. It it truly this is where I, I say you need to recognize Kieran Gillen's music journalism because the pop sensibilities he pours into a comic book. This like truly understands pop music and the fantastical like cult of personality that your average pop star has, where they are modern gods. Now, what if they had superpowers?
1: Is Kieran Gillen your Hanifa Durrakeen?
0: You know, (laughs) probably the closest one I've got. Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) For those of you who don't... If you're a newer listener, we previously did an episode where my love was um, Hanif Abdurrakeef, who is a poet, but also a really fantastic music journalist based out of Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. Um, go back and listen to that one. That's I, I even do a poetry reading on that one. It's a fucking great-ass episode. Um, no, I'm here. I, I This is going to sound shitty. I don't think I knew that Kieran Gillen was a music journalist.
0: I didn't either until, like, researching this. I knew that I had read Wicked and Divine and it's, like, very clear that he is in touch with pop music in a thought sense, but I didn't know he had a background in it.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, and I think I had known that he had done... Video get something with video games before and again I think I picked that up in passing sure hearing people talking about his books and being like and this reminds me of something He wrote uh, about a video game or that he'd written a video game something like that I knew he had something involved in there, but I did not know that he I'm always gonna be a sucker for writers who dip their toes in multiple spaces No And knowing this about Kieran Gillen just makes me more interested in him.
0: Wonderful. That's what I want to inspire because, like, I can't say go read this run. I I can't say go read Wicked Wicked and the Divine, but, like, go read all of his stuff. No, I'll read Wicked and the Divine. to, To inch closer to finishing up and to talk about his Marvel work, which, interestingly, he really hasn't done anything for DC um, and he's done some stuff for, like, Image, which is what Phonogram and Wicked of the Divine and a couple other books of his came out
1: on. Creator-owned shit.
0: Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, he's also worked for Marvel, and he's worked for Boom Studios a little bit. like, But he has not worked for... He, he has done, like, uh, three issues for DC Comics yeah. in, enti- in its entirety. He must...
1: He must... Oh, he did Batman Black and White, which I have also read, and I don't think I realized that... That was Kieran Gillen.
0: Well, there you go. But to touch on his Marvel stuff, like I talked about, he he has written a lot of X Men. It's the thing he's written more of than anything else, which is an immediate way to like get me especially interested. <laughs> knowing what a giant X nerd I am.
1: Oh shit! He worked with Greg Land.
0: He, he did, and I would. I have to think that that was not his like desire <laughs> to be working with notable love-hate relationship bastard Greg Land. Um, but he's he's done a lot with the character of Hope Summers, which is some someone I dearly love. Uh, like I mentioned, he was trusted to kind of close the door on an era of X-Men, He's written Iron Man, he's written Beta Raid Bill, he's written Captain America, he's written The Young Avengers. His Young Avengers run actually kicks a lot of ass. But the final Marvel thing I wanna talk about is his run of Journey Into Mystery. Now, for those of you who are unaware, which is probably most of you, Journey Into Mystery is the original title of the Thor comic book. You know, back when Spider Man was uh, Spider Man was
1: an amazing fantasy. This was this was back when Marvel published anthology books. DC used to do this too. Detective Comics used to be this, right? Uh, it was like the whole the whole model was it was like these eight. It, it might be uh, I don't know thirty two page book, and they'd be these eight page stories. That would be all self-contained, follow, follow a character, and then you'd finish that story, move on to the next story. And Thor debuted in the original Journey into Mystery, just like Spider-Man debuted in uh, Amazing Fantasy, Batman debuted in in Detective Comics, which was a book of detective stories. Right. Superman debuted in action comics, and then later they would get their own stories, backslash, in some cases, become the character that takes over that old story right exactly but, yeah
0: so marvel does a reboot of a comic of the comic journey into mystery and it is entirely a loki story it is the story of kid loki for anyone who is familiar maybe because of the loki tv show or just your own comic nerdum, and without getting into the minutia of it all it is a brilliant like 2030 issue run about kid Loki, who is different from previous older Loki, <laughs> but everybody like is convinced, oh no, you're just the same little manipulative bastard. And yeah. he has to like prove to everyone that he is better. He is a better god of mischief. Um, and without, without getting into the minutiae, he has to save the day in an incredibly unsuperhero kind of way. And I said this when I first read it, and this, this actually might be the very first thing I, I read with Kieran Gillen. Kieran Gillen's Journey into Mystery is the single most Neil Gaiman comic I have ever read that was not Neil Gaiman. This is the closest thing I have ever found to Sandman that I have ever experienced. It's brilliant. It's amazing.
1: So, listeners, we did a previous episode on Neil Gaiman, but Neil Gaiman is another English writer who uh, has written a shit ton of comics. Intriguingly, I think, he, I think Neil Gaiman's written more DC than he has Marvel. Yeah. Um, though he has definitely written some Marvel. Um, but he's also written fantasy novels. He's He actually, like his first book was a bit of music journalism. We talk about that. Um, interesting. Is, mm, go ahead. So your idea is that Gillen is... Gillen takes up a mantle? Or, like, has
0: echoes of Gaiman? Certainly has echoes of Gaiman. And and here's my closing thought. You know, I wanted to highlight Gillen because, in my opinion, he has reached this point where he is deeply beloved in the comics industry exclusively and completely unknown outside of it. But I believe that he has the potential to be the next cross-medium sensation Like Neil Gaiman, I think he has the capacity to reach the incredible highs that Gaiman is at this moment currently enjoying having broken into, you know, literature for decades and he's finally getting his due where all of his all of his works are getting made into television properties and like Gaiman is at the peak of his career trajectory, I would I would say. Interesting. And I think Gillen has the chance to be the next Gaiman more than maybe any other writer. He is wonderful. He is fresh. He is unique. He belongs in the conversation with me with the Rick Remenders, the Al Ewings, the Psy Spurriers as one of the top white male. Very important characterizer there. Appreciate that. Comic book creators of the day. So... Read Wicked Into the Vine. Read Journey Into Mystery. If you're a big X nerd read his run on Uncanny. I just wanted to talk about the man, the author as a whole, and bring up Kieran Gillen.
1: I appreciate that. I can't recommend his Star Wars work enough. Sure, yeah. Uh, I say that up front. I think I've always thought of him kind of as... a uh, contemporary Al Ewing in a lot of ways. I yeah. feel like Al-, Al-, Al Ewing did a lot of incredible work in the 80s and 90s. He's still doing good work now. Don't get me wrong.
0: Oh, I almost talked about Al Ewing. Yeah. And Immortal Hulk and the the Jack Kirby renaissance. Al Ewing is like pioneering.
1: Yes, but Al Ewing, oh, I guess what I want to say is Al Ewing made his fame with his work in the 80s and 90s. Um, and I feel like Kieran Gillen is staking that claim now. I never thought to include him in the conversation with Gaiman. I feel like Gaiman is, has taken over the mantle that in the 80s and 90s we gave to Stephen King in terms of just the sheer adaptability of his works. But unlike King, um, Gaiman also does other shit other than writing novels and short stories. Right. It's a different conversation, but I am not mad. At this notion of Kieran Gillen taking up or having the potential to take up this mantle from Gaiman that, you know, Gaiman hasn't actually given up yet. But
0: no, well, I mean he's given it up in the sense that I think he has eclipsed his own mantle. Gaiman is not going to write anything new. Gaiman is not gonna write any new comic book. He's going to make a TV show of his old comic books. But go read Gillen shit and you will feel like you are reading new Neil Gaiman works.
1: I like that spot to end on. Shall we move on? Please. Okay. So, Andy, you, you told me by your own admission that you did not deeply read my notes, which I actually appreciate. But I want to start in a very mindful place here because I'm playing in your sandbox right now. <laughs> sure. Um, I've, I've said it a million times. I'm the music guy. You're the movie guy. Um, although we both play in those sandboxes regularly. Still, you're a film guy with a film podcast, Andy, and I want to do a bit of a thought experiment with you to start. Sure. I want you to name me three movies that you legitimately believe are good films with these caveats. One should be what you'd consider low-budget indie level. One should be mid-budget, and one should be big-budget. All three good movies. Sure. Okay. Also, they don't have to be blockbusters, destroyed all the records, incredible successes, but all three should be financially successful. At least to some degree, you can define financially successful by whatever terms you desire.
0: And I did do enough uh, research and, and did my homework enough to have an answer to this. Okay. So... A low-budget indie film that I would say is both good and financially successful would be What We Do in the Shadows, the original film. Okay. It, it was kind of Taika Waititi's coming-out party to Hollywood. Um, I've pulled it up on IMDb. has a budget of $1.6 million and has a worldwide gross of seven point two. Okay. So nearly centupled its uh, its
1: budget. One point six million. Cool. All right, I'm is, here for it.
0: Is a wonderful, amazing comedy. Is very much indie. Like, is very much. We rented a house for the weekend, and that's going to be our set. Indie. Okay. A mid level film is actually something your wife Stephanie showed us all one movie night. Um, I, I would propose while you were sleeping. The Sandra Bullock 1995 rom-com.
1: Real quick, what year did What We Do in the Shadows come out?
0: Uh, I just closed the tab, but hold on.
1: Control-T. Is
0: that what that is?
1: Open It reopens the tab you just closed. Uh, Listeners, if you hit Control-T, it'll reopen the tab you just closed. No,
0: it doesn't. It just opens a new tab.
1: <laughs> Control-Shift-T? Yes, Control-Shift-T.
0: Okay, well, I'm glad we settled this. Um, what We Do in the Shadows came out in 2014. Thank you. You're quite welcome. Uh, While You Were Sleeping came out in 1995 and is a Sandra Bullock rom-com. Uh, perfectly good movie. Perfectly fine. I don't think set the world on fire. It wasn't You've Got Mail or Sleepless in Seattle, but, it, like, it's a good film. Had an estimated budget of $17 million, made a... U.S. made a gross in the U.S. of $81 million and a worldwide gross of $182 million. So great success. Absolutely. Great successful movie. Um, and for a, like, big, big blockbuster, big, this costs so much money and it's going to make so much more, I would posit Avengers Infinity War uh, came out in 2018, four years after what we do in the Shadows. Um, and had a budget of three hundred and twenty-one million dollars.
1: Jesus Christ!
0: Gross, two billion. Okay. With a B. Okay. And is a very good movie.
1: Okay. I ask you, to what end? Dread it, run from it. Destiny arrives all the same. I don't know if you realize this, but you helped my point considerably. Wonderful. And, and, and you know what? I fucking appreciate that. <laughs> no. Um, and, and the good thing here is that your So your low-budget movie came out in 2014. And, and I'll talk about this in my notes. That falls into this weird gray area for what's considered low-budget based on the terms we're going to be talking about. But I have not seen this movie. I have heard about it. I've heard that it is very, very good. No, Um, I love Taika Waititi. And it... Do you know anything about the production of that movie?
0: I don't off the top of my head other than, like, having seen it. The majority takes place in a single location. The uh, scenes in that film... Like, there's a bunch of scenes where, like, the vampires are all hanging out in a park, and those are, like, handheld digital camera found footage looking shots, so, like, there's a lower production quality overall. Okay. I think the majority went to vampire special effects.
1: I I appreciate knowing that, because... Like, I watch a bunch of the movies you talk about in cult fiction, and you've had some very low-budget movies.
0: And none of them are good.
1: Yeah, that's a thing. A lot, I think, what's, I always forget Bad Taste, this yeah. shitty Peter Jackson movie. Bad
0: Taste, which is barely a film. It's more Peter Jackson
1: A testing. young Peter Jackson. A, a young,
0: unknown Peter Jackson testing out homemade film equipment with his buddies over the course of five years, and then he kind of tied it all together and yeah. called it a movie.
1: It's a garbage, garbage film. But like but there you go. That is exceedingly low budget. And and it's a piece of crap. And but I appreciate that your example of low budget is something that it's over a million dollars, it's under two million dollars. It features a great filmmaker, um, and has intrigue there. I find it interesting that your low budget and your high budget are very recent movies. But you have to dig back into the mid-1990s for your mid-budget. I sure do. And I'm going to talk about that. So... You've read the title, and it's a weird title for me. It's, it's, I, I, I struggled with titling this segment.
0: And I will say before we talk, I'm here for opening up the hate segments to more conceptual ideas. Like, this is going to be a mouthful of a title, but I'm not mad about that.
1: I'm here for it. So, I want to stick, like, okay, the title here is The Death of Mid-Budget Movies which I think I've alluded to a little bit on the podcast before, but I want to deep dive this shit. Sure. And I think you, I, 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 think this is going to be a good one for us. So I want to state up front that I'm going to be referring a lot to an article by Justin Bailey published in Flavor Wire back in 2014 titled How the Death of Mid-Budget Cinema Left a Generation of Iconic Filmmakers MIA. I'll link to it in the show notes. I'm going to be referring to it several times here. But um, And I highly encourage you all to read it. It is a little bit dated. It is an eight-year-old article at this point. But it is m- even more true now than I think it was even then. Sure. So, Bailey's article begins with a fictional story. I'll say that up front. Fictional involving your favorite tasteless indie darling and mine, director John Waters.
0: Oh, bless him
1: about how he had a development deal to do a film titled Fruitcake, but the studio wouldn't back it unless he could get the budget under $2 million, something that he stated up front he just isn't capable of doing anymore. The fictional story then segues into Waters fantasizing that the young man he's conversing with offers to personally put up $5 million to make it happen, and it is a very cute story, but it illustrates the problem I want to talk about here specifically the death of mid-budget movies for adults. This, I'm going to state up front, does not apply to kids' movies. Kids' movies are a whole different category. Okay. So we're going to set kids' movies aside. Genre movies are going to play an interesting part in this, but we'll talk about that at the end. I was literally
0: just running through my head, okay, what's a horror movie that probably did well, but okay. We'll talk about it.
1: So for my terms, mid-budget can be a slightly elusive term. Bailey, in the article, says that in the 80s and 90s, this would have been movies made for between $5 million and $60 million. Okay. That's your mid-tier in the 80s and 90s. But he also references uh, an interview with Mad Men creator Michael Wiener, where Wiener put it put the current range more between 500000 and $80 million. Mm. So... Keeping in mind, there is some variability here. By Wiener's reference, your "What We Do in the Shadows" movie would not qualify. Sure. But by some other metrics and a few other people that he talks to, and if I remember correctly, the person who gave the um, five to sixty million line was what is her name? The director. Oh, Susan Seidelman. I know
0: that name. Yes,
1: that was the director of Desperately Seeking Susan. Oh, shit, I love her. Which you talked about on Cult Fiction. Indeed. It was one of the best movies you guys have reviewed. Yeah. And talked about.
0: Yo, straight up, everybody, watch Desperately Seeking Susan. It's
1: it's quite good. So, Desperately Seeking Susan, which had a budget of $4.5 million and grossed $27 million in 1985. If I remember correctly, Seidelman said... Seidelman was the one who came up with that $5 to $60 million range mm. and talked specifically about making movies in the $10 to $20 million budget range because that was kind of her sweet spot. That was the thing she was going for. All this to say, mid-budget is a little bit of a moving target, but I feel like we can work with somewhere between 500 k and $80 million. Okay. Maybe we can narrow that down. I personally feel like 1.7 million. Your what we do in the shadows budget. That sounds fairly low budget to me. Uh, not the lowest of budgets, but that's a good indie budget. These days, yeah, you can't even make
0: an indie film for less than like three mil. So 1.6 is.
1: Yeah. Either way, the point remains. That major movie studios today are operating with a different manual than they did when we were coming up. They're releasing far fewer movies and are pumping ridiculous amounts of money into a handful of bloated tentpole monstrosities. What's left over goes to picking up or backing a tiny allotment of small indie level films that they think maybe have a shot at blowing up huge. Okay. Your What We Do With The Shadows is a good example. Keep in mind, that movie came out the same year as this article. Yeah. So, this has resulted in some major issues. I'm going to throw some numbers at you. And I I, I ask our listeners to bear with me. (laughs) I'm going to go slow on this. This is all from Bailey's article. In 1997, Paramount released 19 movies ranging from Good Burger... The Kenan Thompson and uh, Kel Mitchell starring Good Burger
0: okay.
1: for $740,000 to okay. Titanic at $200 million and famously an over budget movie at that. In the middle that year, you had movies like Event Horizon, Face Off and The Rainmaker at $80 million, $60 million, and $40 million, respectively. And some movies did well, some less so. But it was overall a pretty profitable year. If you go, like, Bailey goes into the full slate of movies for Paramount that year in this article. And some of them didn't do so great. Um, what's your metric? Your metric, Andy, is three times the budget for it to be a success?
0: Yeah, so the thing I'm always saying on cult fiction, and I, I saw this somewhere and it's the general hand-wavy consensus for a film to be financially successful, it does not start making a profit until it has made three times its
1: budget. Yes. And a lot of that has to do with marketing. Um, Bailey talks in the article about bloated marketing budgets. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go into those numbers right here because I would like us to sleep at some point tonight. <laughs> um, but the point is some of the movies that came out in that 97... Year for Paramount, some of them made that back, some of them made back double their budget, some of them made back less, and some of them made back huge amounts. At the end of it all, across those 19 movies, they did well enough that Paramount had a really good year, not just because Titanic was a huge success, but because they had movies like Event Horizon, Face Off, and Rainmaker. All of which, if I, if, if, if I wrote my notes correctly, did well. Mm-hmm. They made their budgets back. And when you think about those movies, like, Andy, have you seen all three of those movies? Because I have.
0: Um, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I've seen all those. Yeah,
1: so all three of those movies, like, I feel like those are all movies you see on, you, you saw, we watched on, like, fucking USA, in high not school not event like, horizon
0: but i yeah. see your point
1: yeah like they we'd see them in reruns i'm pretty sure my parents fucking rented face off and the rainmaker from blockbuster that sound yeah
0: that yeah. that is more accurate to me yeah
1: but like the point is all those movies did well they had good if not a-list talent like a minus b plus talent in them. Yeah. Like this was John Travolta at the height of his post-pulp fiction powers in Face Off, like
0: Van Horizon is a pre-Matrix Lawrence Fishburne.
1: It's the and, and all three of those I think are pretty good movies. Yeah. Like are they incredible? No, but like they're all solidly good movies that did well at the box office, did well on video. Yeah. And all of them are middle tier. Sure. So, in 2014, the year that Bailey's article came out, Paramount only released 11 films. So, almost half as many. Ranging from Paranormal Activity, The Masked Ones, at $5 million, to Noah, Transformers, Age of Extinction, Hercules, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Interstellar. All with budgets ranging from 100 million to 210 million. Funny enough, one of the only mid budget movies that they did that year, Selma, made for 20 million, made back more than three times its budget. It made back 68 million. Sure. Was nominated for Best Picture at both the Oscars and the Golden Globes, won for Best Song, and both of those, if I remember correctly. And I think is one of the only one of those films other than Interstellar that I still hear people talk about, when's the last time you heard anyone talking about Transformers Age of Extinction or fucking Noah? I mean,
0: yeah, no one is talking about Noah. I don't think anybody's really talking about Transformers other than to, like, shit on it, deservedly so.
1: Yeah. So Paramount does half as many movies, almost, We 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 can say does two thirds the number of movies, roughly. Yeah. Half that slate almost is these giant fucking bloated ass huge budget films. I think two of their movies that that year are under six million. And one of them is a fucking paranormal activity sequel. Yeah. Which I never saw that one. Did you? I, so funny
0: enough, I was working at a Regal Cinema when that movie came out. I never saw it. I didn't bother. But I remember the whole thing is it was a found footage film, which is a great way to like knock down your budget by like five times.
1: And remember, it is a sequel paranormal activity. It's not even the first paranormal activity.
0: Oh, yeah, I suppose the original Paranormal Activity is found footage, too. Yeah,
1: Yeah, it's, 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 but, but that's my point here. Like, I still hear people talk about Selma as a great movie. Ava DuVernay as a really solid filmmaker. Yeah. Even after her, um, oh, God, what is it? What was the movie she did that's based on the Madeline Lingle novel? Uh oh! Fuck. You got me, man. Why am I? Why am I blanking on this? T- Wrinkle in Time. Oh. Even after Wrinkle in Time didn't do so great, Ava DuVernay is still talked about as a fantastic movie maker. Selma is a great movie, and of all the 2014 movies that I just discussed, I feel like only Interstellar and Selma are the two movies that people still talk about. Yeah, because those were the two that were nominated. And those are the two that were really good. Like, really good movies. Yeah. The rest of them, who gives a fuck? Now, I don't know how Paramount ultimately did financially in 2014, but I don't think they were better served by pouring money into Transformers and Ninja Turtles and Noah. The biggest reason I hate this shit. Real, before you say
0: another word, this is going to become my new fucking obsession. Like I, I cannot wait to start trying to find a modern mid-budget film to go
1: on. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some here, in the, here here in just a second. but so my five favorite movies of all time: Star Wars a New Hope, which was made for 11 million dollars. I was 77. Halloween, which is made for 300,000. Mm. Alien, which was made for 11 million. Footloose, which was made for $8.2 million, and Clerks, which was made for $27,575. Three out of the five of those were mid-budget movies. Yes, later Star Wars movies became big-budget affairs, but A New Hope, my favorite Star Wars movie, $11 million. Sure. Yes, I enjoy big-budget blockbusters. I liked Avengers Infinity War. I talked about on this podcast crying at Endgame because it felt like the culmination of something for me. And I went to go see that movie by myself. I have also waxed on this podcast about my love of rom-coms. Sure. A genre that thrives in the mid-budget. You mentioned while you were sleeping. A Christmas rom-com that is firmly in that mid-range and was made in 1995. Two years before the section of Paramount that is quoted in this article. You yourself have shown me a number of Studio A24 films. One okay. of the only places still doing mid-budget movies. God damn it. I was going to make this point. <laughs> no, please. Talk about it.
0: Well, I mean, I, I was waiting for a chance to be like, okay, you know where I see these? And this is immediately what I thought when I did read nose, You know where I still see these? A24. Yes. And half of those are fucking genre films.
1: Here's the point. The Green Knight had a $15 million budget and all the, the effects it needed behind a great script and incredible actors. You can say the same thing about Midsummer and the new Candyman we watched. Sure. Yeah. Solidly mid-budget films. And they are fan-fucking-tastic low budget movies can sometimes create incredible art from their limitations clerks is a great example of that but those limits also sometimes severely limit what's possible big budget movies get hampered by needing to appeal to too broad a market the movie needs a billion dollar gross to profit so we can't offend china we have to appeal to all four quadrants we need merchandising and it'd be great if a theme park ride could come out of it Straight up, in Bailey's article, he talks to fucking Soderbergh, who's having meetings with people about trying to find shit, and he's like, we can't make this movie because it won't be a fucking theme park ride.
0: Well, and, and I just think about how Kong Skull Island was kind of a garbage, vapid uh, blockbuster action movie but Universal pushed it because they wanted to make a new King Kong ride at Islands of Adventure. You
1: know what's funny is I actually liked Kong Skull Island a lot, and I thought it was a really good movie, much better than the previous King Kong movie. Oh,
0: fascinating. Okay.
1: Yeah, that's just my opinion. <laughs> but And admittedly, a lot of that was um, hinged on some particular script points, which tickled my fancy. Sure. Um, but... It's still a big-budget movie that I liked. I like these movies. I do. But I don't want to see the mid-budget movie die. And it increasingly might as long as the studio system operates like this.
0: Well, you know what point I can make that I'm pretty sure you have not considered here? Talk to me. What does streaming do to this?
1: So Bailey's article touches on that a little bit, but it has a 2014 perspective. Right. A lot of the big filmmakers who we used to talk about are moving their shit to streaming, are going to streaming. He talks specifically about Scorsese.
0: Yeah.
1: Streaming is a weird monster. The rom-com has almost entirely moved over to streaming.
0: Hulu in particular, yeah.
1: And, well, and Netflix to a certain extent, especially the young adult rom-com. Sure. Think about To All the Boys We've Loved Before, which is a trilogy of rom-com movies that I adore. Sure, sure. Hulu as well. The streaming services do make for a space where this kind of thing can happen, but it's interesting because... Are the streaming services giving new filmmakers the same opportunities that they were that the big studios were giving back in the day? Not yet. Exactly. The streaming services are putting their money on fairly proven commodities. Right now, what a lot of the big studios are doing is they're taking filmmakers who have success with the low budget realm of things and then handing them giant fucking blockbuster budgets. Yeah, sure. And there is a problem with that. I think about Josh Trank. Did you ever see Chronicle? Yes, I did. Okay. Chronicle, solid movie. Um, Kind of actually mid-budget. Uh, I just pulled it up. It's a, It had a $12 million budget. Somehow. Um, but it was, you know, a 20th century Fox jam. You know, it, it, it did that whole deal. But then they handed Josh Trank a Fantastic Four movie that he was woefully unequipped for.
0: Right. It's this rumination on... So I actually, to to tie two points together, I I was reading this article about how Netflix is currently facing a financial, like, fall-off-a-cliff crash. Like, they've lost, like, 30% of their subscribers or something. Their numbers are in the tank. They just axed their animation department, which makes me incredibly sad, given that Klaus is maybe the greatest Christmas movie ever made. (laughs) Um, And... I think about um, something I I was already thinking about before we even talking about this, this concept that like somebody said with Netflix, the problem is this assumption that stuff has to have forward momentum constantly to be good. And the second it's not getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, that means all of a sudden it's a failure and we need to drastically change it. Looking at film careers in that same metric, it really does feel like there is this, like, obsession with grooming the next great film person. And I think about some of my favorite directors, your Carrie Joji Fukunawas, your um, your Nicholas Winding Refens, these... Look these, at the Wachowskis. The Wachowskis. Have the Wachowskis
1: ever matched The First Matrix Financially,
0: without looking up what Cloud Atlas made, no.
1: They and and the thing is, they probably never will, but they will also always work because they made the fucking Matrix. Sure.
0: Yeah, I mean that's without being able to point at a twenty-four, which you already have. Um, I'm left with the the random like. Like, I just looked it up because I've been furiously IMDBing this whole segment. Bad Moms, which came out in 2016 and is like this semi-raunchy comedy with um, Mila Kunis and Kristen Stewart and um, Katherine Hahn. And that is a mid-budget film. It, it had a, a budget of like $17 million or something and made like $160 because it was a successful comedy. It got a really shitty Christmas sequel. The few and far between films like that are the only things I can still point to. So I think you're absolutely right. The yeah.
1: mid-budget film is dying. Yeah, it's... it's- And the frustrating thing to me, like, okay, I took a screenwriting class in graduate school and my final project was writing the beginning of a script. And I think I've talked about this on the podcast before. My script was basically clerks, but it was about movie theater ushers, Mm -hmm. which is a shitty job that I had. Right. You worked in that same movie theater as a concession guy. Um, And... I remember sitting in that class and we're workshopping my script and different people have different takes. You know, some people, some people were submitting scripts that were these like high sci-fi things. Some people were submitting like rom-com scripts or, um, I, you know, I had a dear friend who did like something that was kind of uh, no reservations chef kind of deal. Um, because she had experience with working in kitchens. And I remember my professor looking at me and going like, so this actually would probably have a fairly good chance of getting made because you could make it for very little money. If you rent out an actual movie theater for like a month or something like that, you know, that would actually be pretty cheap to produce. You could probably get a studio on board for that because you could probably get a budget that's under like, I don't, I don't know, probably under $3 million on that. And that, this was the first time I had an inkling of this notion that, like, my weird little script that, again, was just basically, like, let me just take all these stories I have about being a theater rusher and give it the clerk's treatment. Yeah. Like, it, that it would work because it was so fucking low budget. Like, so ridiculously low budget. And my professor straight up saying, yeah, low budget and high budget are the two things they're making right now. They don't because nobody cares about investing 10 million dollars for a movie that might make back, you know, 50 or 60 million and only get a 50 million dollar return. Yeah. They want to make a movie for 500 million that gets a 1.5 billion return.
0: Exactly.
1: And that is the point there. And Am I going to a little bit make this about capitalism and and greed and corporate greed? Yes. Yes, I fucking am. All
0: things are, always.
1: Yeah, because you can't be okay with putting $10 million, $20 million for Selma in on a movie and then making back a good profit. A good profit.
0: Well, the thing about Selma is you're making a, a friggin' Martin Luther King film you're making an important movie you're making oscar bait which is probably the only viable mid-budget exception is we will make an oscar bait movie that doesn't need insane special effects because we're telling this like this story and we're going to put it out in november and it's going to win best picture
1: well like i didn't put this in the notes um, but in this Bailey article, he talks. He, he talks to Spike Lee, and Spike Lee is flat out just like, "Listen, X was a studio movie. Do the Right Thing was a studio movie. No, but they weren't expensive. But they were important. They were good. They were profitable. No, they just weren't profitable with like." triple-digit billions. They, were, they weren't they were hundreds of millions of dollars. They were tens of millions of dollars profitable. And that's not fucking good enough. It's only going to buy you this big of a suitcase full of cocaine. So at the end of the day, my biggest... The, the, the point that I want to end on here is I want people to be aware of the idea that mid-budget movies, which walk the line perfectly. They don't have all the restrictions that big budget movies need to have in order for them to be profitable. They don't have all the limitations that low budget movies have to work around in order to be able to put together a workable product. They are solidly, if you have a good script and a good enough budget, you can make incredible art the godfather was a mid-budget movie
0: and they're making a paramount is making a television series about the making of the godfather like the process of making it a movie and probably every episode of that tv show is going to have a larger budget than the film exactly
1: and you and, and 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 i don't want to see this die because so many incredible movies. I want I want to challenge our listeners. Think about like your think about your top five movies. And just look up their budgets. Do me a favor and do that. And if you want, tweet us and let us know what are those movies, what are their budgets, how many of them are mid-tier. Because I have three out of five. Yeah, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't ask you for your top five, Andy. I'm going to have to think about it now. Yeah. yeah, and that's fine. You don't have to right now. But like, I want y'all to think about what the mid-budget movie is. Because if you are someone who cares about good cinema, you probably have at least one, if not several, mid-budget movies in your head as your favorite films, as the best films you've seen. And I don't want that to die. Sure. So that's my shit. That's my rant. Shall we go on to this very interesting question, Andy? I am very
0: interested in doing it. Uh, Real quick, I'm going to cut this off just so you know. We are sitting at 119. So this is going to be another long one. Okay,
1: I'm here for it.
0: You read the preface, so I will go ahead and read the question, which I think you actually sent. This comes to us from our friends at relationship.txt. We have a 20-year-old Caucasian woman dating a 26-year-old Indian man for the past two years. Quote, I love him completely and frequently can imagine us living the rest of our lives together, but I just can't get to grips with his culture. Don't get me wrong. I do try. I've learned a few words. I'm respectful, and we celebrate his religious events together. He is very British. And we live together, and 90% of the time, everything is okay. But recently, I feel my culture is slowly being taken away. His sister is getting married soon, and there's a big Indian wedding planned. I've been given Indian clothes to wear, and I'm feeling so completely uncomfortable in them. I feel like I'm being converted to his religion, and I feel completely out of place. His family are expecting me at this week-long ceremony with prayers and to wear these Indian suits. His parents initially didn't accept me, and although they've turned the corner, there have been incidents where they've asked me to change my clothes or, quite frankly, just be really rude. In their culture, age is wisdom. Recently, I've been thinking about breaking up with him, but my love for him makes me stay. I'm wondering if this is something I should put up with for true love. Am I being racist and stupid? Should I stay with him or not? In an update... We've had many conversations about cultural differences, and he's super supportive. We both often end up crying trying to figure out a solution, but we both have things we don't want to give up, and his Indian culture is really important to him. So, we need a name. I, I have a esoteric idea.
1: Uh, I'm listening.
0: I, I, I would like to name our question asker the entirety of colonial Britain.
1: No. Okay. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. You ever seen The Big Sick?
0: You know, I, I need to very much, and I have not seen it yet.
1: It is actually a very good film. Um, but I... I Are you familiar with the story of it? Yes. Okay. So, for those of you who don't know, The Big Sick is a semi-autobiographical Kamal Nanjiani story where he um, is is an Indian man who falls in love with a white woman and there's less culture clash about it so much as it's about um, the woman he falls in love with um, physical illnesses Mm. and him kind of getting roped into caring for her and getting to know her family and it being a whole deal.
0: I think it works. Also, just just pointing out, five million dollar budget made fifty six. It's a good movie. <laughs> okay, so this is gonna be what I do for every movie for the rest of time.
1: Oh uh, Jesus! So we have Emily and Kamal. Mm-hmm. Those okay. are th- those are our people we're talking about. Um, I have to tell you something. I've been dating this girl. She's white. A white girl? You can't look like you and yell white girl. It's okay. We hate terrorists. So, you read. So, I will start. Okay. I'm gonna answer this directly. Um, Are you being racist and stupid, Emily? Um, I don't think it's productive to say that you're stupid. I think that goes nowhere. Are you being racist? A little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. Because here's the thing. You refer to yourself as Caucasian here, and you say that your culture is slowly being taken away. What the fuck is your culture, Emily? What is Caucasian culture? What is white culture? It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist because of white privilege. Sure. Andy, what is your um, nationality heritage? German
0: and Scottish, but we're like five generations removed from either.
1: Okay. German and Scottish. Those get to be individual cultures. That's not white culture. Sure. So when you refer to yourself as Caucasian up front and then say that your culture is being taken away, the concept of white culture is a racist, white supremacist notion. I state that up front. If you think there is such a thing as white culture, you are dealing with extremely racist upbringings. There is such a thing as black culture, specifically black American culture, because the black diaspora of the United States was forcibly removed from its African culture. Sure. And if you talk to an actual Kenyan or Nigerian or Libyan, you will know that all of those places have their own cultures. So are you a little racist, Emily? Yes. Should you stay with him or not? I think you should. It sounds like Kamal is trying to be on your side here. I think Andy and I are actually like decent people to ask about this because we are both in inter-ethnic marriages. Sure. And I will state up front, I have a lot of criticisms about my parents' culture, about the culture I was raised in. I have rejected a lot of there have been expectations placed upon my spouse placed upon my partner to conform to certain ethnic standards and i reject that and she rejects that that said when you when you marry into a culture when you decide to Partner yourself with another person for whom their culture matters. And let me be clear. My culture matters to me in some regards. I don't believe in the patriarchy of my culture. I care very much for the language. I don't care for the misogyny of my culture. I care a lot for its uh, colonial history. Mm. Like I pick and choose and I get to do that. Because fuck you. Kamal cares about his Indian heritage. He cares about his culture. Should you convert to the religion he was raised in? No, that is bullshit. Should you play nice for his sister's wedding and wear the goddamn clothes? Yeah, deal with it. It kind of comes with being the person who has more racial privilege in the relationship. You need to humble yourself to that regard. Yes, it's a fucking week where you're going to wear some uncomfortable clothing. Fucking deal with it. It's his culture, and that deserves respect. You don't have culture like he has culture. Maybe you are also German and Scottish, and you can do German and Scottish things for the German and Scottish weddings of your probably sunburnt relatives. <laughs> Until then, fucking deal with it. Andy?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I, I maybe come down even a little harsher on Emily than Alex does. I mean, the, the moment where you lose me is he is very British, and I list that as a positive thing. I mean, that statement in and of itself immediately, like, creates this incredibly complex, muddy thought experiment on the British colonialism of India. And the whole thing of, like, my boyfriend's family is too Indian, but he's very British. That is stupid.
1: Look, I've been referred to as very American as a yeah. Colombian male and to be clear biologically I am Colombian my parents are of Col- well biologically it's complicated but'm uh, <laughs> not gonna get into that um, point is I am culturally Colombian but I have I was I was born in the United States I was raised in the United States I consider myself more of a an American citizen and a denizen of the United States than I ever have been Colombian. My, again, my Colombian heritage is important to me, but it is heritage. It is not what I was raised in.
0: Sure. And I just find the inclusion of that fact to be very suspicious.
1: It, it's Because,
0: not <laughs> like, what is British culture besides bad food and taking over people with darker skin than them?
1: They invented heavy metal. Sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and just like, my whole thing is like, God, how, and, and I don't, I, I say this knowing it maybe is internalized and unrecognized. How jingoistic does Emily have to be to sit here and go, ah, a different culture. It is a... More, more than, like, you kind of bring up it as, like, a responsibility as the white, more privileged person. It is a experience. It, it could be a joy of some kind just to, in an appropriate context, which is so few and far between, but, like, for this white woman, this is an appropriate context to truly try to experience... Indian culture in this way that is that is such a wonderful little hey here is a life experience you get to have that like if you open yourself up to it maybe this will make you a broader horizoned person this can really be like a great thing and emily is sitting here going like oh god i'm going to have to do weird prayers and shit so I, God, I, I think they should stay together. Absolutely. I, I, I sit here with you and think that Emily needs to do some self-work to be worthy of them staying together.
1: There are people who feel that the partners that they devote their lives to should come from similar backgrounds. There are people who say, like, I would never date someone outside my political affiliation. I would never date someone outside of my religion. Um, I say this as someone who very deeply, I love my in-laws. And they are evangelical Christians. And I am an atheist. And I have sat at the dinner table with them while they have said grace. And I'm polite. And I sit there. I don't close my eyes. I hold hands with whoever's reaching out a hand to me. I don't think they're expecting anything of me. I'm certainly not expecting anything of them. You deal with shit from your partner's family. And as long as at the end of the day, there is not active disrespect, you kind of deal with it. This whole... In their culture, age is wisdom thing. Trust me, in my culture, age is wisdom as well. It's stupid. It's a lie. It's a bullshit lie that old brown people tell themselves so that they can sleep at night before they die. (laughs) I have met some of the stupidest motherfuckers I have ever met have been brown-skinned old people. And they think that they're smart because they're old.
0: Well, and it's one thing to sit here and be like, no, in our culture, like, women don't work and they take on all of the child rearing and and housework. And so we don't think you should have a job versus, hey, we'd like you to wear this sari for the wedding.
1: Yeah. I am an atheist. And if I walk... ...into certain temples, I will take my fucking shoes off. If I walk into a Jewish temple, I will take the public yarmulke. You respect other cultures. You don't be a bitch-ass dickhole. And Emily, right now, you are being a bitch-ass dickhole. Deal with the fucking wedding. Deal with
0: the wedding. If you are in true love you should be able to swallow this pill and realize that it's maybe not so bitter as you are afraid that it is. Yeah. So wonderful question dear your boy. We will post this. Hope Emily sees it. Hope Emily stays together with Camille. Um, if you have a question and you want our, impassioned though perfectly unqualified qualified advice with, on
1: filled with fuck words
0: filled with fuck words on familial issues on marital issues on pets on anything that can be a relationship we are hungry for these questions we love to swear at you <laughs> uh dear listener uh, but only when you're being a what was it fuckhead dickhole
1: something like that i don't fucking know
0: Bitch-ass dickhole. Truly. We would love your questions. We would love to give our advice. Usually, people who send us questions are not really in the wrong and so therefore are not so worthy of vitriol. And you can send those questions where you're probably not in the wrong to podcast at gmail.com. And we promise we'll read them.
1: That's right. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, you can also rate and or review us on any and or all of those platforms. We're told it helps us find the show. Who the fuck knows? Who cares? Just do it. Like, it. it's helpful. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D. Um, we tweet about random shit that we see. Uh, after this episode, we're absolutely going to just, like, Hype up every fucking thing that Kieran Gillen ever does from now until the end of time. Um, And you can also DM us your questions or, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever you need of us. We, We will be here for you.
0: You can also follow my other podcast, Cult Fiction, which Alex has talked about, where I watch cult films with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson. Probably a couple mid-budget films left on uh, our extensive movie list. At least a few. At least a few. You can find Cult Fiction everywhere you can find LHR. You can find me, Andy Boel, on Twitter at jovocop two one one three. Or find Andy's underscore Minis if you want to see my ever-growing Warhammer and Mini collection.
1: That's right. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and LieChess and Chess.com at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. Thanks for listening, y'all. As ever, please tell your ass.